So welcome back to the AEC Hive podcast. I'm Ralph Montague. I'm a director at ArcDocs and one of the co-founders of AEC Hive, where we're discussing uh, innovation in architecture, engineering, and construction. I'm joined by my co-founder, John Egan. John, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. John Egan, the CEO at BIM Launcher and co-founder at AEC Hive. And I'm looking forward to another great conversation today. Great. Well, we're very excited today to have uh, KP Reddy with us, who's the CEO and founder of Shadow Ventures, all the way from Atlanta in the USA. KP, you're very welcome. Uh, we're really looking forward to talking to you. Maybe you could, for our listeners, just give us a little bit of background about yourself as an individual and, and, and maybe uh, your company, Shadow Ventures, and then we could uh, take it from there. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for having me. It's always fun seeing in our industry people doing things to get the word out across the globe in terms of how we innovate in our industry, because it sure does need it. Um, yeah, my background. So I'm a little bit of a weirdo. Um, my dad was kind of a, a pretty well-known structural engineer, and my mom was a computer programmer. So I literally grew up with tech and civil engineering in my world. Um, and actually, my dad, when I was 13... And back in 1984, bought a computer um, because he thought he needed a computer for his office. Um, and then basically made me write structural engineering software for his use. Um, so that was kind of my first project at 13 was help my dad build structural engineering software. Um, and he knew nothing about computers. So that's what I did. Um, so that was kind of my first project. And I would say the intersection of kind of the built environment and AEC and technology back in 1984. So so basically since then I've had the bug. Um, went to Georgia Tech for civil engineering. Um, lasted about three years as a civil engineer, pra- practicing as a civil engineer. Um, and then basically started my, my, I would say my first big startup in 1997, which was focusing on construction management um, but 100% on the web. So think web-based construction management in 1997. The construction community told me the internet was a fad and I was out of my mind and to get out. So because we were bootstrapped, we pivoted very quickly. We pivoted into telecom, grew from two people to 1,200 people and went public in 1998. So grew, scaled very quickly, um, was very successful. Um, ran that company until about 2000, um, 9-11 was really hard on our business. Um, so we restructured through 2001, 2002, I left and took a couple of years off. But in the meantime, met these guys that were running a company called Revit Technology Corp, was going to invest in them, uh, went on a three week vacation, which is what you do when you're on sabbatical and came back and they were sold to Autodesk. <laughs> But saw BIM and saw, you know, you know, 2004, 2005, that BIM really had a lot of potential. But I always had the echoes of the Internet as a fad from my first startup. So believed that BIM was highly transformative, but the industry was going to be slow to adopt. So started a company focused on BIM analytics and BIM technology and sold that in 2009 to a group out in the Bay Area. So yeah, so commuted out there for about three years, did a small stint with Geary Technologies, helping launch Geary Technologies. 
So I spent some time out in Santa Monica doing that with Frank Erie. Took a couple more years off, ran the incubator here in Atlanta at Georgia Tech called ATDC. And that's when I basically decided I did not want to go start another startup. I really wanted to invest and help build many startups. And that really started mostly with industry people. So Thornton Tomasetti uh, out of New York Structural Engineering Firm helped them create their incubator, helped them spin out six startups and just kept going from there. So I had a early about five years ago, most of our my projects were AEC firms trying to innovate and trying to spin off startups. So we did a lot of that. And then uh, two years ago, we decided to launch Shadow Ventures and be more of a traditional venture capital firm. So we're on our third fund. We focus on seed stage, where we think is the biggest gap, which is pre-revenue. And we run a global incubator program to help, I would say, develop proprietary deal flow for ourselves. Wow, that's incredible. What a career. And um, I suppose, like you, Shadow Ventures is very much focused on AEC sector, or is it more broad, a more broad focus? No, it's all AEC. We do invest in commercial real estate technology, but I would say we are technical as a as a team. I mean, you can imagine with with me leading the business, we're we're always going to be a little bit more nerdy. So we don't get real excited about advertising plays or tenant experience and things like that on the on the real estate side. It's more energy management tech. We do like hardware. We do like material science as well. So although with through the firm, we haven't done any material science deals. I've mostly done a lot of those deals kind of out of my family office versus through the fund. But we yeah. constantly look at material science deals. So, yeah, so this is this is what we do. And I suppose with what you do day to day, I mean, you're probably experiencing really top end of innovation that's that's happening in, in the AC. But I suppose the reason we started AC Hive was in general, we find innovation to be very low. So investment mm-hmm. into R&D and innovation project in general in the AC sector is probably less than 2% of, of uh, revenue. You know, people are just plowing ahead and doing things the way they used to do them 50 years ago, 20 years ago, even though it's tedious and mundane and you know, it's, it's continuously failing. They just keep going and doing the same thing over and over again. You know, it, it, would that would you have that sense as well? Or you, I mean, obviously, you're dealing with companies that are really pushing the boundaries. And what's your general feel about the yeah, I, yeah, and I think, you know, predominantly our sector is a services business, right? So if you look at fundamentals of business models, it's a services business heavily driven by labor arbitrage, right? I'm going to pay X dollars for a person. I'm going to build them out at Y. That's called gross margin. If I keep them highly utilized, I make more gross margin. And, and that's the core AEC business. When you start looking at technology, it's a product business and it's a totally different business. It is near impossible to do R&D in a services business without any kind of meaningful progress. Um, so most R&D has to be customer funded. The minute it's customer customer funded, it means that it has to be a quick commercialization cycle, which means it cannot be transformative. Um, so that that's the conflict you see in terms of business models. And so it's actually um, 
it's actually unrealistic for the AEC industry to innovate internally at a pace that's highly disruptive and transformative. The financial model does not exist for that. It's yeah. mostly marketing and PR. Yeah, which is weird because, I mean, every, everybody's been talking about productivity in the AEC sector for so many years and, you know, that there's productivity has been stagnant when you compare it to to other sectors and you, you know, you'd think there would be an internal drive for companies to to look at ways to to be more productive not you know not improving things slightly but improving things by a scale of you know like doing it right. as quick or whatever yeah but my <laughs> argument is like why right why be more productive if it is contrary to your core business model you know, and, and I think that's the issue. If you don't know how to monetize your innovation, if your core business model is driven by lack of productivity, it's about how many hours you work and you're defined. You know, it, it's interesting. If you talk to any person in the AEC firm, if you talk to the, the design side of the house and you say, you know, how big is your firm? Just ask a simple question. They will tell you how many people. They will not tell you how much revenue. If you ask yeah. a contractor, how big is your firm? They talk about how much construction value they do. They don't talk about how much profit they create. And so, you know, those signals tell you a lot about the lip service that is given around innovation and why it doesn't actually happen. There are no incentives for the existing construct to be innovative and be disruptive. It's contrary to their business model. And I think the profit you know, in profit margins are so low. I think you know, as a contractor, you'd be lucky if you're making two or three percent profit on on your projects. Mm-hmm. That you can understand why you wouldn't want to invest <laughs> some of those profits into R and D that may or may not work. Anyway, it's fascinating. You you recently had a, an exciting pitchathon event where you had I think was it sixty different companies pitching new ideas. Well, some were new ideas, some were mature ideas, looking for uh, the sort of next stage. Uh, do, do you want to tell us a little bit about that event and, and maybe some of the highlights, you know, what, what came out of that? For the record, I'm not a huge fan of pitch competitions. I think they're actually not a good idea generally. But what happened was when COVID hit, my team came to me and said, look, our startups are struggling. They're not, you know, the startups in our incubator, the community struggling. They're not sure what to do next. They feel like it's not appropriate to reach out to customers to try to sell product because it's tone deaf. It feels even less appropriate to reach out to investors. And so they're kind of all sitting on their hands because of the climate. And so my team came to me and said, like, you know, let's do something to help the startups. And so they came up with this idea of pitchathon. The other thing people that know me is that I don't play well with others. I don't work well with other VCs. We rarely co-invest with other VCs. Um, I just don't think that they're that, they add that much value and we do a lot of work and we add a lot of value. Um, so I'm generally, I don't play well with other, with other VCs. And so the big thing was they said, no, we want to work with all the other VCs and just do this for the startups. And I'm like, okay, fine. You guys do that. And so really, um, I get to take no credit other than my team seeing our startups in a world of hurt and trying to come up with something creative to make it better for them. And uh, the only role I had was to tell them it was okay to do it. It was, um, and so that was the point. And we had, uh, I think over a hundred and something startups apply. 
Uh, we had great partners to help promote it and to help evaluate it because it was it was a pitchathon. It was uh, two days of ten hour days and fifteen minute pitches, um, so it was pretty exhaustive. But we thought it was kind of the least we could do to try to help and support the startup community. And we were very fortunate. It's it's interesting if you look at the list of supporters. We probably reached out to ten times as many. And many chose not to participate. Uh, you guys were great partners of ours. Um, you know, and there's nothing really in it for anyone. And so what I'll say is the, the part, you know, if you look at the people that supported it, they're the people that actually care about what startups are doing. A lot of other people just said, oh, that's not something we, I'm like, we didn't ask for money. We didn't ask you guys for money. We just, we said, hey, we're just trying to help our start, help these startups out. And by the way, most of the startups were not even in our incubator. So it wasn't even like, you know, self-promotion of our own startups. <laughs> so no, it was a great event. I still am getting emails about how well it went, uh, how well it was executed. And I continue to say I had nothing to do with it, but thank you. Uh, and we had great partners like you guys. Was there anything that stood out with the one or two ideas you thought, man, that's just transformative? So what I'll tell you is kind of, you know, we're, we're a different kind of firm. You know, we have Matt Ullman, our CTO, we've worked together for 10 years. He writes code every day. We're, we're very, very deep on the tech. So it's really hard for us to have anyone show up and be amazed, right? Short of a flying car or a time machine, you're not going to really be that impressive to us. But what we see is the potentiality, right? Directionally, this is a company that's making the right moves. And hopefully, if they don't partner with a mediocre investor, or, or build a mediocre team, they can actually execute on something transformative. You know, the, the VCs that say, oh, you need to be profitable or you need to be like, okay, no, this is not, you're not going to be profitable. You're going to lose a lot of money and it's very high risk. That's why it's called venture capital. Um, but you know, there's a company called Aaron, A-R-E-N, um, that's doing a, a lot around computer vision, around infrastructure in terms of being able to identify infrastructure that's failing and predict failure uh, all via images and video, which is kind of interesting, has you know high potentiality there to be super transformative. But I always look at startups and I say, our industry has a fixed amount of dollars, right? There's a fixed amount of money. In order for you to be transformative, someone has to lose a dollar. Someone has to lose. In order to win, you have, someone has to lose. So if you're going to get rid of structural engineering as a profession because of your technology, I'm interested. If you're going to destroy Autodesk because they don't deserve it, because they're la you know, they're asking actually holding innovation back in our industry, then I'm interested. If you tell me, eh, you know, we, we did this thing and we're going to make PDFs better and like, I'm not interested. Um, and so I think we're starting to see some patterns emerge where it's all about who's going to lose. And that could be an entire profession, right? I mean, we're, we get really excited. If you tell me that architects will cease to exist in 10 years because of your technology, I'm listening, right? Um, I get super excited about that. And I think that's a little bit of the difference of our attitude of how we look at what's excite us. So unfortunately, I don't get too excited about a lot of things. Yeah, well, as an architect, I'd probably be less excited about that idea. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, um, the this idea of startups. I mean, John, John, you're a startup in this space, and 
I suppose you've, you've got a lot of questions about, you know, how startups should consider working with VCs and, uh, you know, whether that's the best route, getting lots of uh, capital injection versus bootstrapping, etc. Thanks, Ralph. Give a bit of context. We, I've been the CEO of three companies now. The first two failed. The second one failed because of VCs taking advantage of the trust that we put in VCs. Maybe it was a bit of, it was a bit naive on our part, but we were encouraged to go on a path and money was promised along that path and the money didn't come and the team dissipated um, because we couldn't afford to feed ourselves and, and so forth. So I suppose the questions after that experience, I was very much so of the mind that I would never work with a VC again, just because it seemed to be about two different things. Like for me, it was very much so about the innovation, the disruptive product that we were developing, the team, this kind of blue sky vision that we were going to transform the industry. And then on the other hand, for the VCs, it was very much so about, right, we give you this amount. When when, when are you going to be able to return this money to us? And, and how much more of it can you return with that? The question off the back of this is, what do you have to, I suppose, advise to startups that might be listening today that have identified that the business model of the VCs may not necessarily align with the startup who has all this innovative spirit, what would you say would be the benefits of going with a VC or, you know, would you advise them to go with a VC or would you advise them to continue on bootstrapping if they can actually afford that? So as a startup, you should, so I've never taken venture capital, so use that as a data point. But as a startup, you have to understand our business model. If you don't understand our business model, you will never be able to understand what our relationship looks like, right? And what people don't understand, you know, you have to ask us good questions and it's, it's incumbent on you to ask good questions. And what we typically find is many of the startups in this space are actually not venture fundable. They actually do not have the characteristics of growth and potentiality to return venture capital returns. And I think that's super important. We, we, our firm, our model's a little bit different in that we are not looking at making 10 investments and one being successful, you know, a thousand X, right? We're not hunting for the next unicorn. We don't think unicorns really exist in our space. And the only way unicorns will exist in our space is if we actually destroy entire industries, right? That's the only way. And so we focus on solid consistency. Um, we don't look at one out of 10. We want to see eight out of 10 of our companies be successful. And we have math that says what success is. So I think step one is understanding what your business model is, what the potentiality is, what the returns are like, and understand that you are, ta- you know, that is our job. Our job is to invest a dollar and get 10 back. That is our job, right? So you have to understand our job to understand whether you want us as a partner. <laughs> um, and we, in our firm's perspective, we will do everything that is necessary to make the business successful. Um, and that's putting in the work, that's putting in the money, that's the relationships. Um, that's why we have such a big team and such a highly qualified team. 
because it's a lot of work. A lot of VCs just want to like write the check and then criticize you every quarter about all the things you're not doing right. Um, I don't, th- I think that could come later if you're a series A, series B investor. Um, but you know, we still help solve code problems, right? We still help solve marketing problems. So I think the fundamental for an entrepreneur is you need to understand whether your startup is venture fundable or not and start there and understand that if you take on more money, does the pie get bigger faster to deliver a better outcome for yourself? If that is not the case, then you shouldn't take VC. Venture capital is the most expensive form of capital, period. The cheapest form of capital is customers. And where I get disappointed being an entrepreneur, you know, I always say engineer first, entrepreneur second, venture capitalist third. Where I get disappointed sometimes with startups is they spend so much time chasing venture capital that if you added up all those hours and focused it on getting customers, you might actually be, maybe actually you don't even need venture capital. Good point. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there or listening to this podcast, KP, who, you know, like you, or maybe currently working in a job, but have a dream or have an idea that they want to pursue, um, you know, and, and sort of the angst of whether whether to pursue that as a separate business or outside of the business um, to become an entrepreneur. You went through that. I heard in one of your previous talks that uh, you said once you've become an entrepreneur, there's probably no going back. And I'm sure there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there who are feeling, you know, damn it, why did I leave that well-paid, secure job? (laughs) Um, You know, and uh, but as I think you said, like, you know, you either entrepreneur by spirit and you, you know, you won't go back to a job or I mean, is that the case? yeah, what, you can't, would you ha- what would you have for people out there who are yeah. pursuing an idea? You can't unring the bell, right? And I, I wrote a book a year, a couple of years ago called "What You Know About Startups Is Wrong," and people uh, that read it are like, "Gosh, I wish I wish I would have read this before I started out as an entrepreneur." And I always tell people, and I've had other people tell me, "I wish I would have given this to my significant other, my spouse." before we decided that I was going to quit my job and be an entrepreneur Um, because it's not easy. It's not trivial. You can go back to the corporate world, uh, but you will be miserable, you know, period. Um, There's something that triggers um, once you are an entrepreneur. And, And that's why when people talk about jumping in, my advice is don't jump in. My advice is if you think you want to start a company in the next 30 days, Spend the next year planning. Get your get your personal financial house in order. Don't be in a hurry. Like use your corporate job to attend all the conferences. And look, if you have a corporate job, you always have extra time. Leverage your corporate platform uh, to get meetings. Right. If you're if you're if you work at Gensler and you ask for a meeting with someone at Autodesk, they will respond very quickly. Right. They're like, oh, it's Gensler. Let me have that meeting with this person at Gensler. When you leave, no one cares about you. Literally, the flip switches and every relationship you had that was the weight of the firm you were with abandons you. You're all by yourself. Um, and so it's super important to do that legwork and build, start, start setting the stage before you leave because a lot of people discount the value of the and the platform of their firm, right? Go to all, you know, so what I say is take your time, plan well, get your personal life in order, right? If, if it's your credit history, if it's the debt structure, everything, 
and basically plan for the next five years of your life, right? Nothing happens. I mean, things do happen in two to three years, but you plan for the worst. You say, I'm going to plan for five years. I will go, I will have zero salary for five years, right? Plan, plan in a way that's much more reasonable um, and save well, right? Save well, cut down your expenses. If you have personal stressors at home, small children, whatever, make sure that your family's bought in to what you're doing. Cause basically what you're saying is for the next five years of my life, it's going to be hell for everyone. I will not be home on weekends. I will not be home in the evening. I will be gone all the time. We will not be taking a family vacation for five years. All those things, right? Set that stage really, really well. And I tell people you will be successful because the things that I see holding entrepreneurs back are actually they take the risk of getting into entrepreneurship and then they become very risk averse. <laughs> like, oh, I can't do that. Oh, I can't hire that person. Oh, I can't go to that conference. I can't do it. Like all of a sudden they become very conservative and that's because real life takes over. You're not discouraging people from being entrepreneurs. You, I think you teach classes to young people on yeah. entrepreneurship. And so, I mean, this is great advice, but obviously it's not, it's about um, thinking carefully. No, don't just jump in you know, yeah. without thinking about it. And if what, you're, what, if what are you're, the benefits of being an entrepreneur? Why would you? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, I, 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 you know, I, and you guys have experienced the first hand. My calendar is insane on any given day, but I always make time for college students. So I was coaching a college student yesterday who's a civil engineering grad, and he's like, "Hey, what should, what would you tell your 20 year old self?" Which is a great classic question to ask somebody. Um, And what I explained to him was like, look, go exceed the limitations of of a platform before you start your own platform. And my point was, when I was a civil engineer, I beat every record in terms of customer generation, utilization, won every award globally. Like I basically, my boss came to me and said, you should be a vice president in this firm, but you're 24 years old. You're never going to be a vice president at 24. We're culturally not set up that way. And my, and I left the firm because I realized I had already exceeded every, everything that was available on that platform. And I decided I needed my own platform. I interviewed with other engineering firms and I was like, look, I'm 24 years old. Last year I drove 25 million in fees. How much do you get to pay me to come to your firm? And they're like, oh, $50,000 a year. And I'm like, absolutely not. That's insane, right? It's insane. Well, you know, you don't have your PE yet. Like they told me all these things, right? I didn't have enough experience. I only had three years of experience, like all the things that big firms tell you. And I was like, look, I have, I have outgrown the platform that I'm on. And I tried to find another platform. I couldn't find one. So I created my own. And I think that's where you have to think about it, right? It's not that you, if you can't be productive, um, at the firm you're at and exceed everything and outgrow that platform, why do you think you need to build another platform from scratch if you haven't exceeded the capacity? You know, you don't need to buy $10,000 golf clubs if you can't even hit a three-foot putt, right? What's the point? And so I think there's a little bit of exceeding your platform mentality that you have to have. And I think what being an entrepreneur means is that you, you're limitless on the platform you get to build. What do you see as the biggest challenges that the AEC sector should be tackling? What would you like people to be 
thinking about and dreaming about in terms of um, solutions? I'm pretty vocal about this. We're the last industry that that creates a product of great permanence, right? And you throw away your iPhone every two years. You throw away your iPad every two years. Like, there's no longer a impactful product on the planet that has permanence that lasts for 25 years or 50 years or 100 years. And as AC professionals, we have great responsibility because we are literally shaping the planet. And I think as an industry, we forget that. We start focusing on some weird door detail or something nonsense, right? We, we, we lose perspective on the importance of the work we're doing. And the challenge is the tools and things that we have to do this amazing work are absolutely idiotic. They're absolutely the worst. And I think the more we continue to build on things that foundationally are terrible, Autodesk is terrible. There's nothing good about Autodesk. And we continue to build foundationally on technology of firms like that versus saying blank slate. If I had all the coding ability in the world to build something from scratch, that's going to align with the gravity of the work that I'm doing for humanity. What would I build? Then I'm, then I think that's where we've got to be thinking about innovation. Stop thinking about, Oh, I can like, do daylighting faster or I can create, you know, I can create um, sheets faster or I can create a visualization better. Like who cares? No one cares. Right. Because you're still living in that same world of these typical deliverables. And I think that's where I think we've, we've lost our way. Yeah. Well, I suppose just put uh, the argument for the the tool makers, if you like, uh, be it Autodesk or other, often when you talk to people from those companies, they would say the tools that are there are not being used. People, you know, they, they have all these amazing capability to do all sorts of fantastic things, but but people don't use them. And uh, going back to your earlier point, that the business model and the way construction typically happens uh, in a sort of stop-start, fragmented way, and yeah, multiple mm-hmm. parties and nobody has, you know, the overall responsibility or nobody takes overall responsibility, then there's no drive to even use the capability of the tools that are, exist as, at the moment. Um, so maybe it's not a failing of the tools, but maybe it's a failing of, of, um, just the structures within the, in, in the industry to, to use the tools that are available. What I'll, mm-hmm. what I'll tell you is I think if it wasn't for companies like Autodesk, we would have lost an entire generation of architects, engineers, and contractors, like smart kids. We would have lost them because if current, if you think about currently, if your job as an architect after six years of school was to go work for an architecture firm and do door details in AutoCAD, you would have quit, <laughs> right? Like you would have quit, absolutely. So I give them credit in pushing technology um, you know, innovative technology. The challenge, I, my challenge to startups that are looking at it is the technology that Autodesk is selling is now 15 years old. It's now 20 years old. It, like, it makes no sense, right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't be using 20 year old technology. And what I'll tell you about why people don't use the tools is because they're terrible. They, it's a push of use my tool, use my tool. And I look at it and say, in terms of the world of intuitiveness, 
and understanding what your customer needs are, I would say companies, I'm picking on Autodesk, but there's, they're all the same, right? They take their signaling from the most innovative people in the organization versus the lowest common denominator, right? Nobody trained your grandmother on how to use Facebook. No one trained your grandmother on how to use Google, right? It just works. It's intuitive. You don't have to, you know, you don't go off and get two weeks of training on your iPhone. Um, And I think what's happened is a lot of the industry has targeted the BIM manager, right? Theory, right? And, you know, if you think about it, why do we have a BIM manager? That's insane. That's like having like a word processing, you know, that's the modern version of a CAD department. But where I say the failure has happened on the tech side is innovation also means ubiquity. And if we can't put design tools on the 80 something year old architect's desk, the same way we put it on the 24 year old's architect's desk with an equal amount of intuitiveness and capability and horsepower behind the scenes, then we're not getting anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. We're giving very amazing tools to people that lack the experience to do anything transformative with those tools. And the people that have the experience and can do transformative things do not know how to use the tools because they're not intuitive. That's absolutely true. I mean, if you think of some of the more interesting tools that have come out, you know, they, they're really niche. If you think of things like Dynamo and, you know, Grasshopper and, you know, like there's, there's probably a handful of people around the world who can, Right. You can understand what those things do. <laughs> is, is, is as, as amazing as they are. Right. Is, is Sir Norman Foster using Dynamo? <laughs> no. That's the problem, right? Yeah. That's the problem, right? Why not? Well, it's because it's a pain in the ass and it's like a this and a that, right? So my point is like, that's where the gap really exists. And I think what happens is the, the market of the tech providers today is that they, they really are focused on you know, a narrow market. So that's a bit about um, uh, the summit, Shadow Summit. Like, what mm-hmm. what is it trying to achieve? You know, you have this this big event uh, every year, is it? Yeah. Um, who you know, who's participating? What's it trying to do? Yes. Yeah, so I started Summit four years ago. It's our fourth year, um, and the vision was I didn't think there is a place for executives and innovators in our industry to actually talk about technology and actually understand what's going on broadly and, and be exposed to the things that are more broadly in nature and really saw that every conference, summit, et cetera, were all driven by vendors, right? If you go to Autodesk University, you are not learning anything about innovation. What you're being done is you're being sold and getting bought into the culture of Autodesk, but you're not learning anything. And what I started looking at was if you look at AIA or AGC or RICS or any of these organizations, whenever they had their big annual conferences, there was a session on technology. There was a track on technology. And if you're a CTO or a CIO or an executive, I'm not going to go to a two-day conference to only hear about one or two panels on tech. I want to spend all two days on tech. And so the reason we built Summit in as a venture firm, um, our mission was pretty simple. We want to pack the room with the most innovative people, both from a startup's perspective, 
um, as well as from industry. And so I would say our sessions are very nerdy. Um, people joke around like, do I get a PhD when I'm done with this? Cause I have a headache. Like it's, we, we go into some deep things. The other thing is I try to expose because I have a lot of, you know, exposure outside of our industry. I try to bring in people from outside of our industry to help them understand, to help them understand like what's happening more broadly. Because you get stuck in this industry thinking we're innovative, thinking Dynamo is innovative because we're, we're myopic. And then it's, it's an opportunity to pick your head up and see what other people. Last year, we had the CEO, the founder of Andrew, which is a next generation defense com- company, defense contractor. They came in with their killer drones, basically. Um, these are weaponized drones. They raised a hundred million dollars, unicorn company in two years, started by a friend of ours, Palmer Lucky, who was the founder of Oculus Rift. Like it was wow, right? Like, that showed up with weapons, so to speak. Um, and so it exposed the technical people in the crowd, like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like, what are they doing? Um, we had one of my startup, um, one of the companies that I mentor, the founder is another unicorn startup. He bootstrapped for three years and did his series A at about a $1.2 billion valuation. He came and spoke about what it takes to create a unicorn. And honestly, like how he and I work together as a relationship to build a unicorn together, exposing people. And he knows nothing about AEC. He couldn't tell you what AEC stands for, but I think it's important that we don't set the bar around innovation as a peer group, but we should set the bar of innovation in a broader, in a broader market sense. Yeah. Right. If we're not trying to beat Google, if we're not trying to beat that world, like our work is too important to not to say, to say that we can't start the next startup that's going to be more valuable than Google. That's going to be more transformative than Google. Crazy intersection of nerds. And, and what's cool a, is a two day thing, is it? It's a two day event. Yeah, two day event. This year it's virtual. This year is virtual. And what's cool about it, and you guys will appreciate it, is last year we had about 30% attendance from overseas. So Tokyo, Turkey, Singapore flew in for the event. And what we're doing this year is we're really trying to do it global. So the agenda, there'll be a US agenda, there'll be a Europe agenda, and there'll be an Asia agenda. So it's one thing for you guys to fly to Atlanta, Georgia, um, and be on my time zone. I don't expect you to get up in the middle of the night to be on a virtual event. So we've been very deliberate about being inclusive of a global audience and setting the agenda to everyone's time zones. So yeah, and I point, just real quick, sorry. Um, the other thing we learned with Pitchathon was when you do these virtual events, people want uh, closer interaction. They want more intimate interaction. So all of our speakers, none of them will be doing Q&A after their talk. We're not going to burn up time doing general Q&A. What there will be is there will be a 10-person roundtable after every talk where 10 people uh, in, a cl- in a small environment get to engage with the speaker on a one-on-one basis. Well, one-on-one, you know, 10 to 1. Um, and that's all based on first come, first serve. So if you bought your ticket earlier – you get early access to, to meet with the speaker. So we already have, uh, the, the head of sustain, chief sustainability officer for Home Depot is speaking. Um, the chief innovation officer for PGA. So if you're a golf fan, once again, intersecting with other industries, PGA is a lot of fun. So, you know, 
Uh, he'll give his talk, and then afterwards there'll be a roundtable of only 10 people that have been pre-selected. So we've tried to really create these intimate inter- interactions versus everybody just sitting with your screen. Yeah, that sounds great. Really, really looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, I suppose when it, we we're really happy as AC Hive to be partnering with you uh, because one of our objectives was to really connect innovation. So one of the things we saw was there were pockets of innovation happening around the world in, in the AC sector, some some really interesting groups. But what we're trying to do is, is get those groups talking to each other and uh, interacting with each other on a more global scale because I'm pro- you've probably seen that, that, that there's pockets of fantastic innovation around the world, but then there's areas where you know, there's probably very little innovation. And that's one of the fantastic things about the internet is it exposes everybody to what's happening. You, you have something, Joe? Yeah, I just want to come in on that because uh, I noticed um, that you obviously, or KP, you have uh, with Shadow, Shadow Ventures, you have different agendas across Europe, US and Asia. And one thing that we try and try and do when we bring on different speakers from different sides of the globe is ask them about innovation in those in their particular areas. And I think it's quite a unique position you've put yourself in that you actually get to take a step back and look at these different regions, Europe, US and Asia. And I'm wondering, have you noticed attempts to split the uh, agendas by speakers and teams or have you noticed any trends or different things emerging from different regions that you could share with us? Yeah, I think the, the biggest, I would say, just stands out, right? We have several investors from Tokyo. We spent a lot of time in Singapore as well. I think what's interesting about the Japanese market, they really are very big on automation and construction. They really are not doing nearly as much on the design side and design tools, but mostly on construction and innovation. Singapore, I have found super interesting. They are developed like on the research side. They're doing amazing, amazing things in Singapore. And I think that is because of the scarcity that they deal with, right? They don't have their own water. I mean, they, they're a very tiny country with no resources, so they have to innovate. However, they're not commercializing nearly as much. They, they research a lot. They do a lot of R&D, a lot of experimentation. We see a lot of really cool ideas come out of Singapore, but very few of them are ready for prime time. They're, ready, they're not ready for purchase. So we see a lot of that. Uh, we're seeing a lot of automation, surprisingly, unsurprisingly, uh, coming out of Germany. So we see a lot of interesting startups coming out of Germany that are much more on the robotic side uh, and, and that kind of thing. So there, there are little patterns emerging, you know. And I think part of summit this year, we really do want to see more, more of that. Like exactly what you're saying, I think there is regionality around how people look at problems and how they look to solve them. Job site automation is interesting, but because labor costs are so low in India and there's so much abundance of labor, it's hard to really get traction. But when you look at asset management and energy and quality of air in a building and performance of a building, there seems to be a big focus on that right now in India. It's funny because um, Ralph and I, one of the things that constantly come out of our, our discussions with different people from different sides of the world is that in Europe we're much more inclined to reach for standards to manage digital projects 
Um, so we talk a lot about the ISO 19650 standard. And I'm wondering, have you noticed anything like that? Is that like, or well, like rather than kind of like focusing on niche tools, uh, such as, you know, robotics and so forth, have you noticed any like more trends that are more global to the region? Do you see that, you know, in Europe where we're much, we're much more focused on the use of standards for information management on projects. Um, and whereas the US, we found they're not so, um, quick to, quick to reach for standards and they prefer yeah. to recreate the wheel each time. Yeah, I think, I think that's a fair, I think that's probably a fair assessment. One of the things we look at is, well, we, you know, there, there's a term called financialism, which the US suffers from. It's very short sighted. Right. People develop a property and then sell it within a year or two. Right. So they don't really think about the long term benefit of standards. And if you think about when you're short sighted uh, as a developer, as an owner, when you're short sighted, the learning curve, the friction of adopting standards, you will not see the benefit if you're selling the property in two years. Right. And so I think what you see in countries like Europe um, is that and in, in places like Europe is that because the assets are held on to for a longer period of time, the owners and developers have a longer view of how long they're going to own the asset. They see the benefit of following standards, building standards on the front end. And it's worth it. It pay, you know, it pays dividends on the back end. And I think that that's one of the clear differentiating you know, in the U S uh, like I have some investors that are developing multifamily in London and when there was, they started two years ago and I didn't know that there's like not a lot of institutional owners of apartments, right? It's mostly like smaller groups of families. Whereas in the U S you have, you know, large insurance companies that own apartments, right? It's their assets. They get traded every year. They're constantly buying and selling them. And so I think that's something that's very unique in the U S that we have this asset trading mentality. And if you're not going to hold on to a property for long enough to see the benefit of doing it right on the first end, on the front end, like following standards, there's not a lot of incentives to to invest the energy. Well, until Mm -hmm. I suppose people begin to recognize the value of um, high performing buildings and good good data that's backing up the operational performance of of assets. So, you know, Mm -hmm. people will eventually begin to realize that. But Anyway, um, sorry, we, we've already come up to the hour, and you know you're having a good discussion when time just flies. <laughs> um, KP, do you just do you want to give some any parting advice to our listeners, um, some encouragement, just in general about um, pursuing innovation, pursuing entrepreneurship, um, even uh, how they might approach you or work with you if if they want yeah. to. Yeah, I think you know the key thing is like if you plan on solving a big problem, right? It's, it takes time and just be prepared for it. Be prepared, you know, before you make the leap, um, have a plan, give yourself plenty of time and money to execute on that plan. Because what happens is as you, things don't go your way, your big idea, you start to make it a very mediocre idea to survive, right? You can't continue on that path of the big idea when you can't pay your bills and you haven't planned for it. So just, you know, Try to set up a plan that you can execute on your big idea and not be driven to mediocrity. Um, as far as working with us, you know, our incubator, 
we run it globally. We have companies all over the world in our incubator. Um, we have about a 20% acceptance rate. So, you know, it takes something to get in. So if you have a startup, you know, you can definitely apply to our incubator. We also run a pretty extensive community. So our AEC community, which is all driven by Zoom and Slack, and we have programs and content constantly, um, that uh, you can go to our website and look at community at shadow.bc. We have about 600 AEC professionals in that community, and most of them are all like-minded, right? So before you make the leap, kind of figure out your community, figure out the people that are thinking like you. And so that 600 people in our industry professionals community, they're all architects, engineers, contractors, real estate developers that care about innovation and technology. And so I would say that's a great way. We don't charge anything for any of that. Uh, it's a great way for you to kind of engage with like-minded people. And, and I think that's super important. But, you know, there's lots of ways to work with us. We, we're, we're in it for the long haul, right? We think we're, we're trying to build a multi-generational firm at Shadow Ventures. It's, uh, and that's why you'll even see our team. Uh, there's me. I'm kind of the old guy. And then there's everyone else. And I'm, I'm trying to build out our future, right? In terms of our team and how we build our firm. Excellent. Well, we really appreciate your time today and we, we look forward to continue to work with you and, and Shadow Ventures on your, uh, particularly on your upcoming summit. And um, John, do you have any last words? Or? No, nothing from me. Just thanks. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks very much for sharing your insight and wisdom with us. I'm sure that our listeners will be very happy to listen to, hopefully follow up with the different channels that we leave in the description below to this video. Just want to say thanks from our side for your time, and uh, we'll talk to you again. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much.